Welcome to an Inform Live Radio on 1150 AM, KKNW, and CHDTV, also streaming to Twitter and Facebook. Glad you are joining us on this holiday, uh, leading into the holiday weekend, Memorial Day weekend. Uh, you know, and it's really important to remember why uh, we celebrate Memorial Day weekend. It's not just for the good food and playing outside. It's, it's to remember you know, those who sacrifice their lives um, and put their lives on the line in order for us to remain a free republic. We are a republic. Um, a few reminders as our show begins that the views expressed um, on this show are not necessarily those of our wonderful freedom of speech platform here at KKNW or CHDTV. So we're just bringing a discussion, information, not medical advice, not legal advice. We, we just want to uh, expand the conversation because, you know, really all every everything going on today in your life that you're probably disgruntled about has to do with informed consent at some level. People not given enough information to make fully informed decisions in so many areas of their lives. And it does take work to become fully informed. So that's why you're tuning in. Uh, I want to bring on uh, Carl Kanthak. Oops. Um, doing a little dueling here with my wonderful engineer. I was going to try to do it. Carl Kanthak. Hey, Carl. Good to see you. Good afternoon. So um, viewers who've been watching for a while have uh, know who Carl is. Carl is who I call my data guy. I met him several years ago, pre-COVID as it, as it is. They're going to have to come up with like there's BC, AD. Yep. Now there's going to have to be PC for pre-COVID era. Um, and a something else for after COVID, um, if we ever get after <laughs> COVID. AD, after disaster. After disaster, <laughs> after pandemic. I don't know. What are we going to call it? Um, hopefully, um, it will be the new freedom era. So, you know, we're going to give it a positive spin here. But But Carl, years ago, began to discover that in order to perpetuate um, ridiculously high uptake of vaccines, that data at the state level, at the um, at, mo at the health department level, and and being pushed out was being manipulated in a certain way, played a certain way. Numbers were being uh, bandied about in what became to be very predictable predictable patterns in order to attempt to remove personal exemptions and increase rates. You know, um, a lot of what is going on right now regarding the COVID shots um, and not wanting people to have the choice, you know, trying to make it mandatory for a time. The foundation for that has been laid for decades with the United States policy of believing that vaccines are always good, that they do come with risks. But if you let, if you validate the risks and allow criticism in any way, um, you will undermine your program. And some people will choose not to get these products. And they don't want that. So 
the, this whole network of system of raising fear that huge outbreaks are going to happen if a certain percentage of individuals do not take these products and that those outbreaks will be dangerous has been going on for a long time. And Carl, um, this all came to a head in Washington State in um, 2019. Uh, that was an interesting year, wasn't it? I mean, so much was being uh, planned here. Um, oh, let me see if I can find this here. But I, I want to do a little flashback to okay. y'all. Well, and then, and then to, to add to what you're saying is that the, the challenge for public health has been how do you make uh, a 97% compliant program not look good? Yeah. <laughs> and that's been the, you know, and if you, and it's because if they were to honestly disclose that nationally the exemption rate is 2.5% or less, that uh, only one point, at the highest it's ever measured is 1.3%, of two-year-olds have zero vaccines that, that, that they've ever measured, that uh, clearly, logically, the only reason you would be going after exemptions when the exemptions are that low and you have such positive acceptance is that they want to add vaccines that nobody wants because mm -hmm. you've got voluntary compliance for the current program. And that means you're either going to modify that program or what I determined was that they're going to expand the program outside of the kids and onto adults, and since adults are not as compliant as the children are, then you need to get uh, you need to be able to eliminate exemptions as a legal principle mm -hmm. and a legal precedent. And everything up till now has all been window dressing for that objective, which is eliminating exemptions as a legal principle and precedent, so that as mandates are expanded out onto the broader community, they're not available. Yeah, that's exactly what we're going to be covering today because there's a new study out and it's based on what happened in 2019. So that's what I want to show here. Um, 2019 was the first time that I um, I ever interacted with the media. The every time, only first time I, I did these an interview like on television and most of them, 99% of them did not go well, meaning, well, I thought they went well. You know, I brought great information. I followed up with the reporters with links to everything I talked about, all the studies, all the data, all the history, brought it all to them. And when the article came out, they would give me one or two sentences that says, Bernadette Pager is the biggest anti-vaxxer in Washington state. And she's, you know, about to kill people. It's basically what would come down. I'm like, what about the pages of data? Nothing, right? But USA Today, believe it or not, this uh, reporter named Jane O'Dell actually gave um, a, a, a decent article, a fair article. And it was called Why Big Pharma Distrust is Fueling the Anti-Vaxxer Movement Playing a Role in the Measles Outbreak. Um, now, let's see, I got to figure out how to slide this down. And so, it, you know, the lead in is Bernadette doesn't trust the pharmaceutical industry and she doesn't trust vaccines. And then it says pager is not alone as distrust of the pharmaceutical industry grows. So has the anti-vaccination movement. Of course, they never define anti-vaccination movement. If they actually interviewed people that they label this, they would find out their former vaxxers, parents of the vaccine injured, uh, people who have actually studied the science or the lack of science, like a placebo studies. They've looked at independent studies, seeing that the fully non-vaccinated 
overall are healthier than those who received any vaccines, all of that stuff. They don't bother with that, right? But, but still, it was the focus on distrust of the pharmaceutical industry. But you know what's so funny, Carl, is um, I remembered this article recently because I've been really focused and doing a lot of research on these antidepressant drugs and the mm-hmm. um, ADHD meds. You know, we're really doing working on a big campaign to try to slow down the prescriptions of these things because they're leading to violence. You know, a lot of self harm, a lot of public harm. Uh, so we're going to be going into that a lot. And so I met this wonderful woman named Kim Witzak, and as we were talking, she says, "Wait a minute, Bernadette." were you interviewed by USA Today in 2019? <laughs> I said, yes, I was. And she said, I was too. And so look at this. Let's see if we can get it to appear here. There she is. There's Kim Winsack. So we just met like two months ago. And she remembered that she said, I couldn't figure out at the time why I was being featured in an article about anti-vaxxers. <laughs> and now our world has come full circle. And we've met. Interesting. And um, yeah, so... Kim Wintzak is a wonderful individual. In, in 2003, her husband died by suicide after only five weeks on Zoloft. Mm-hmm. And, and she has made dedicated her life to trying to bring prescriptions of, of so many black box warning. Well, before she got on board, Carl, there were no black box warnings on many of these drugs. She was instrumental in helping get these drugs to get the black box warnings. It doesn't seem at this point to have slowed down prescriptions though. So we need to, you know, elevate the awareness um, massively, just something like the opioids so that there's an understanding with doctors and pharmacists and especially people who are considering going on them, uh, the problems and that there's no off ramp as it were to getting off these drugs. Correct. Right. And um, so anyway, yeah, and, and then uh, and I I will just say for myself and I'm sure for yourself also is that neither of us are doctors. So when we're discussing this, none of this is legal or medical advice. But right. those are those are incredibly uh, dangerous for a certain set of the population. And it's got they've had black box warnings for suicidal ideation, homicidal yes. ideation, and uh, a couple of resources for that are Dr. David Healy, who runs a website RXISK. A British uh, uh, British expert, and then uh, Dr. Mm-hmm. David Bregan here in the United States, who's been mm-hmm. trying to get these drugs off. And there's a very uh, strong association between these drugs and the uh, mass shootings. The very yes. first one uh, in '89 was by one of the first people to be prescribed. I think it was Prozac mm-hmm. at that time. But yeah, there's uh, no. I, I, and then, and again, it's uh, you know. Uh, in one of my presentations, I show a Rasmussen poll that prior to COVID, that uh, uh, the pharmaceutical industry had a minus 54 rating. It was minus 38 or 54. Yeah. And somehow in that short period after that, you had people going out and getting Pfizer tattoos. So what a, <laughs> what a rehabilitation for an industry. How do you turn your industry reputation around and, uh, uh, you know, yeah. you link it, link it to political, uh, no, the, these people are the same geniuses that get people yeah. to drink, uh, uh, you know, bottles of diet soda and everything else. Yeah. And there are a tremendous amount of effort and science yeah. that goes behind that. Exactly. And so in 2019, in a nutshell, there was a tiny in-break, as we called it, of measles. It was um, a, 
a, a small isolated community that uh, very respectfully self-isolated. Um, the pastor came forward and said, hey, it, measles is in our congregation. They're self-isolating. These families have between six and 11 kids. They're letting the siblings get it, the cousins get it. So they get natural immunity. They did not, they all had religious exemptions, not personal exemptions. However, this could not rise above the noise of the Department of Health, the Secretary of Health, and all the ma major media that were making people afraid to leave their homes, thinking they were going to die of measles if they stepped outside. I mean, the hype was horrible. And so a uh, couple of really bad bills came forward. One of them was 1638 to remove the personal exemption to the MMR. And that happened. Um, the personal exemption went, there's still in Washington state, uh, the personal exemption to all other vaccines required for daycare and school. Uh, of course, still medical, I shouldn't say of course, because they're going after medical exemptions too. And medical exemptions and, um, and religious exemption still exists for the MMR. So that one is still available to everybody. So it was quite the battle. Um, and now here we are, and it is 2023. And look, May 26, 2023, Seattle school shifts to virtual after student contracts measles. So here we've got um, one, one school, uh, with a case of measles and what's the vaccination rate? It's 95%, but they're going to shut down the whole school. If, if the shots work, why are all the kids going home? <laughs> and if a kid doesn't have the shot and the parent wants them to get natural immunity, why not? It doesn't make sense. What are you afraid of? Either your product works or it doesn't work. Um, but there we go. They're sending the kids home right on time to um, coordinate with the release of this study, which is what you're going to be talking about today, this new study that Correct. came out that they analyzed exemptions and MMR vaccine uptake after 1638 passed, after they removed the personal exemption. So is that a good place for you to, to take over there, Carl? Yeah, sure. I hadn't heard okay. about the Seattle situation. So, yeah, <laughs> they um, snuck that in. Yeah. They're, they're just going to start, you know, they're going to drop things here and there. Right. Well, um, yeah, yeah. The, and I've got some stuff, uh, you know, if we have time about 2019 that's included in here. Okay. So uh, today is did HB 1638 work so that when you read the study and then there's an associated uh, uh, opinion along with it that is trying to say, oh, yeah, so we need to get rid of, again, as many exemptions as possible. One of the things that happened in the terminology is Washington's, it's a philosophical uh, exemption, but they are doing everything they can to take philosophical out of the lexicon because that sounds too thoughtful. It sounds too measured. <laughs> so now and they just so, want to use the word personal because it's like... That's why, yeah, they want personal because they want it to sound uh, less less intelligent and potentially <laughs> selfish. Because, uh, you know, I, I uh, spoke one time. It's funny because the, the, this characterization of as anti-vaxxer, um, you know, I'm showing all the time the misrepresentations by the public health officials about their own data and I had actually a person con uh, contact me after I testified for against this legislation and said, I, I can't understand, are you pro-vaccine or anti-vaccine? And I said, no, I'm pro-honesty and pro-truth, and that I don't believe that public uh, entities should have the opportunity to misrepresent 
material facts in order to support legislation that they as an agency would like to desire. Mm -hmm. And then, and, you know, and they said, well, what could you, what could be a philosophical opposition to vaccination? Well, one of that is the, I am not a utilitarian, so that it is a simple statistical, scientific, objective fact that some children will be injured and killed in a, a vaccination program, if only from error that they have the intended injection is a medication substitution, medica medic uh, medication errors and uh, healthcare error is the third leading cause of death in the United States. And mm -hmm. vaccination and the vaccine administrations do not exist in some isolated bubble outside of that. Yes. So it is a, an absolute certainty that some children are, are harmed or killed by vaccination programs. And I would be horrified to learn that an, another parent's child died that because they got them vaccinated thinking that they were trying to protect my child. Yeah. And that I, that I do not believe in that type of a utilitarian system. That is my either. philosophical objection to these types of systems. Yeah. So uh, let's see, we'll go forward here then. Is uh, First off, before I do anything, I want to uh, very clearly state that I am not pro-measles death. Okay, and, <laughs> <I'm> uh, <neither. laughs> and this is uh, the 1920 to 1982 Communicable Disease Statistical Summary from the Washington Department of Health. And, uh, uh, you know, in the 1970s, school attendance rules were not a response to high mortality in the school age population or any populations. Routine childhood illnesses stopped being fatal post-World War II with widespread improvement in nutrition, refrigeration, sanitation, the introduction of penicillin and other antibiotics into clinical practice, which took care of the secondary infections, which were quite oftentimes the, the, the mortal part. Children with access to nutrition, sanitary living conditions, and a pediatrician tolerated the infections very successfully. Mortality was centered in the disadvantaged. We don't want them to pass either, but vaccination no. is only one strategy. Right. And then just um, showing here with measles is that the, uh, the highest ever listed was 1924 on the left side, about six down, and then you get to World War II, 1944, and it's zero, 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 zero. And then uh, we did not have school rules until 1980, and measles mortality dropped to zero in 1968, 12 years before school years, uh, school rules, and a long time before there was systematic and widespread vaccination. Mm -hmm. So the story, the, the article we're talking about is uh, American Journal of Public Health, state policy removing personal belief exemption for measles, bumps, and rubella, school immunization requirement, Washington State 2014-2022. This paper purports to examine the impact of removing the philosophical and personal belief exemption to the MMR vaccine in Washington State. This was done through ESB 1638. Uh, so what does the Twitterati think about that? So uh, this is a... Uh, a service that tracks that down and it's getting some traction and if you okay. follow this issue you can see who the uh, you know the normal players are and uh, there's oh list. yeah i'm recognizing uh, all the names yep you're you know and they're all of course all saying yes we need to be doing this if it says it brought a, it raised rates then we need to be doing this yeah and uh <clears throat> all the typical voices are yes. kaplan and dorit and and that caulfield yep. guy up in canada then you have uh uh and then as a, uh, you know, well, you're an English person, uh, you know, to EHB 1638 or not to EHB 1638. And uh, as the, uh, yeah. my mother was an English major, this would uh, uh, to, uh, to twist her up pretty good to, that, to do that kind of a terrible 
uh, title. But yeah. so EHB 1638 was associated with a 5.4% relative increase in kindergarten MMR completion rates and a 41% decrease in MMR exemptions for K-12 students. Both findings were statistically significant. However, the rate of religious exemptions among all K-12 students for any required vaccine increased 367% after passage. <laughs> I love exact, it. 367%. Yeah, which was exactly <laughs> as was predicted. Right. And, right. and actually, uh, Harris, uh, said, uh, Repre Representative Harris? or Senator, Yeah, Representative. Anyway, yeah, Representative Harris, when people were asking him, what are we supposed to do? He said, well, just switch over to the religious exemption. Well, and, well, the way I remember him putting it one time when he was really frustrated with us, we were just trying to talk logic, common sense, you know, personal medical freedom. He said, well, why don't you all just join the Church of the Anti-Vaxxers? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so then if we look at then the, uh, you know, the abstract here, which is typically the only section that is read, uh, vaccinations are up 5.4%, exemptions down 41%. That sounds great doesn't it? But, uh, but then it says HB 1638 was associated with an increase. Well, how, uh, that doesn't seem very strong. Uh, how come it's only associated? Didn't it cause the increase? So then this paper commits the primary error or in my intentional misrepresentation that there are only two vaccination statuses for students exempt or complete. And the result of this misunderstanding or misrepresentation is to improperly assign any statistical increase or decrease in either status as being caused by and then mirrored by an equal increase or decrease in the other reciprocal status so that every time exemptions go up, the complete rate goes down. Anytime the complete rate goes up, it must be because the exempt rate went down. And then what I will show here is that the real clause of the increase in complete is moving not exempt out of compliance and conditional into the complete category. So in reading this, and you know, uh, we were discussing before we're on air, I look at the, the list of the authors and you have all of these people who are at a minimum college graduates, MSs, maybe a PhD, many MDs. Yeah. And so it says in here that the uh, MMR exemptions overall decreased from 3.1% in 2018, 2018 19 to 1.8. So if the MMR exemption rate was only 3.1%, that means the maximum downward impact that it can have on complete rates is its nominal value, which is 3.1%. 100 minus 3.1% is 96.9%. Uh, so 96.9% of Washington K-12 students were not exempt. And so that therefore any complete rates below 96.9 were unrelated to exemption availability. Mm -hmm. The maximum downward pressure again is 3.1. And it also means the maximum increase you could say, see if you eliminated all exemption use is 3.1. Mm -hmm. And that would be 100% of kids vaccinated. Yes, that would be if that would, well, that would be if you got rid of, if you got 100% of the kids using a, an exemption to either leave the schools, which is what does happen, or to, to resume vaccinating or start vaccinating. So it is mathematically impossible that eliminating a 3.1 exemption rate could increase the complete rate by 5.4%. Now, how is a college educated person able yeah. to read that and not logic that out in their head right. and question what's going on here? This is astounding to me and I see it all of the time. The, the, the low quality of these types of studies, are, 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 it's, it's amazing. And, you know, I am concerned because, you know, there is at least one individual on that study who I've met with, 
you know, spoken with, get invited to speak to, um, to classes. And I respect this individual. I guess I, you know, I'm going to name names, but I don't understand how she could have see, not seen the, this logic here. And it's, it's the language, like you said, associated, associated kindergarten vaccine series completion rates. They didn't say associated with increase vaccination rates, just completion rates. Right. So their choice, right. their choice of language is so careful. So as not to be flat out lying, Correct. it's definitely Correct. misrepresentation, but it actually is lying, Carl, because if did they, did they do one of their usual things of moving where they measured? Because if you just move where you measure, you end up. Yeah. Well, that's right. part of it. I'll okay. keep going then. So uh, so here's the other test for that then. If 96.9% were not exempt and you added 5.4%, then you'd end up with 102.3. So, you know, a person could do this in their head while they're reading this and realize there's something wrong with this representation. But it's worse than that because they didn't zero out the 3.1% exemption rate. Because the religious rate increased 1.1%, it largely offset the personal exemption rate. So the actual reduction in MMR exemption was only 1.3%. So how could that result in a 5.5% increase in complete rates? It can't. And so what's going on? And the question is, is could Washington Department of Health sell exemption revoking legislation with the true statement that 96.9% of Washington K-12 students are not exempt for MMR injections? And that's, that's why, that's the, the basic reason for all of this. Uh, you know, you look at this study, there's charts, there's this, there's that, and it's all designed to obfuscate the fact that they have 97, 98% compliance with the program. And that doesn't sell restrictive legislation. So here's what's going on is that when you, this is from the uh, Vaccine Advisory Committee on 12-15-2022. Uh, this is the statuses. So the yellow is the complete and exempt. That's the one that most people understand. Conditional and out of compliance is where the real numbers are. So, so the maximum. I'm going to slow Go down ahead. just a little minute, a bit for those who are just audio. So we're okay. talking about um, vac your vaccination immunization status um, as defined by the Washington State Department of Health. Correct. And they've got where you show up on the report. So you're going to show up as either in a, as a complete. So they're saying that mm -hmm. <clears throat> 1638 increased the complete rate multiple times greater than 1638 reduced the exemption use. Yes. That's the problem with this paper, yes. is that that is a false assertion. There are, there's other reasons that the complete rate increased that had nothing to do with the exemption rate. Mm -hmm. And that, uh, and so the four categories you can be, you can be complete or exempt, but there's also conditional, which is a temporary status for children lacking. So uh, that's 30 days. You have 30 days that you're allowed to be conditional. And then if you still are not vaccinated or have provided proper paperwork, you're considered out of compliance. Now, <clears throat> there is a disharmony between the CDC ACIP medical dose timing intervals and the political administrative grade measurement milestones that causes not exempt, but not yet complete students who are fully within medical guidelines, but still in the process of being vaccinated to be categorized as out of compliance. 
So for the radio listeners, I'm just showing a chart here. This is the, all of the requirements. And so a child in Washington State licensed facilities, birth through high school, is now subject to 24 or 25 injections, depending on product selection. There are no single-shot vaccinations. There are seven two- to six-injection series. There are five vaccine series of two to six injections for K-12 enrollment. There are 16 injections required for kindergarten enrollment. Now the next, and then I'm, the next slide shows. So the, the issue is, is that the ACIP schedule ha, has set, there's four injections that are scheduled between the fourth and seventh birthday. And the Department of Health would like all of those be administered on the fourth birthday and they're trying to violate the medical uh, recommendation, which provides that three-year window because of the wide variety in development of children who are four to seven, when you can have a pro-vaccine doctor who's fully intending and parents that want to do this, and they just recognize that this child is a little less developed as would be that I don't want to do all four on the same day. Mm -hmm. And then this chart is just documenting that. that so they're saying here that by seven years or uh, school entry at four years old. Now, the next chart I'm showing is that the vaccine schedule used to be complete before kindergarten enrollment. And there's uh, uh, you had so when the school rules were started in 1980, they started to phase in. Then the schedule then was only three or four DTAP, depending upon product again. Uh, there was uh, one to three oral polio and then one inch of measles, mumps, and rubella. Mm -hmm. And that was all done as a toddler long before you would be enrolling for kindergarten. Mm -hmm. So that at that point in time, these categories made some sense because the majority of children were complete. You might be missing one of the three M, M, or R, or you're missing your last this or that. So it made sense, okay, you need to catch up that last shot. So you had that 30-day conditional period, and then after that, you would be out of compliance. So what's going on is that, again, since 2000, four injections scheduled in a three-year administration window between the fourth and seventh birthday have been added to the school attendance schedule. K enrollment is age five or age four for transitional kindergarten. The report closes on November 1 at the start of the school year. No vaccination, the, the vaccination reports are not designed to track students who are in process. And that's what's causing this uh, high out of compliance. Mm -hmm. And then as a reference, this is from the CDC showing the fifth DTAP in between four to six years, the second MMR, the fourth injected polio, and the second chickenpox. You know, part of part of this exemption issue, too, is that back when there was only one MMR, if your child reacted strongly to the first one, you didn't need an exemption because there wasn't a second one. Mm -hmm. And of course, the chicken pox, it was only added in 96. And when you look at the exemption rates, you see directly a bump that you can point to and say, adding that vaccine to the schedule did cause a rise in exemptions, mm -hmm. as opposed to this association business. Because people didn't want it. Correct. So a 12 injection kindergarten student is fully within medical guidelines up to their seventh birthday. The pediatric offices have the, C the CDC ACIP schedule, not the school grade schedule. 
The window allows adjustment for individual development of the patient. The vaccination reports are not designed to track students who are in process. Now, it appears that the technical, the, the manner for a not-exempt student to be compliant while his pediatrician is spacing out the final four shots would be that you would obtain four temporary medical exemptions for the missing boosters and then update the record each time a booster is administered so that the student moves from the temporary medically exempt to complete as the vaccine series is completed. Out of compliance is primarily being driven by measuring students who are too young to have all the injections. And again, it's that disharmony between the medical schedule and the wanting to measure kids when they're five in kindergarten. They're measuring students who are too young to have all of the injections too early in the administration window at the beginning of the school year. This is easily remedied. I submitted a petition to the Washington State Board of Health in 2019 to fix this issue. Yeah. And I went through and showed that the current certificate of immunization doesn't have, they don't have enough of the uh, uh, certificate of immunization status vaccination categories are inadequate and causing misunderstanding as to the vaccination uptake and exemption used by Washington students. Current categories fail to take into account that 25% of the kindergarten to fifth grade attendance recommendations are scheduled by ASIP between the fourth and seventh birthday. These inadequate categories are creating inordinately high rates of out of compliance. There are no medical, religious, or personal belief exemptions hiding in the out of compliance. Filing an exemption is compliance. Updating inclusionary criteria for complete to recognize students who have primary doses as complete would alleviate much of the confusion. The final doses can be captured during the sixth grade report or an additional report could be timed at the end of first grade or at the beginning of second grade when all the students will be seven years old. Alternatively, either adding an up-to-date or properly vaccinated for age category would correctly identify that a not exempt 12 to 15 injection five or six year old kindergarten student who is in process for one or more of the final four injections is in compliance. Another category should be added for missing certificate of immunization status, self-explanatory. That would subtract any students missing a CIS from the out of compliance and properly identify them so staff can follow up. You know, one of the things is that there's a McKinney-Vento law for the homeless where yeah. they are not, they don't have to have paperwork. No, so right. I, I don't know how, if, if that's diluting this or not, that might be another issue. Yeah, that's, that's very so, true. So in their own study, then this is the this is out of the study, the table in the study, statewide trends in kindergarten MMR completion and K-12 exemption rates. And so it shows, if we look to the left, the school year, we have 2018-19, the kindergarten MMR completion rate was 90.8%, but the exemption rate, K-12, any MMR exemption rate was only 3.1%. So if we add 3.1 plus 90.8, Mm -hmm. then you got 93.9. So that means that 6% of those, 6% of that is due to out of compliance. It has mm -hmm. nothing to, that you could have, you could achieve up to 6% increase in complete without ever messing with the exempt kids at all. Yeah. So then when you look at the bump then from 2018 from the, to the next year, you mm -hmm. had that increase of 94.4. Well, what happened during 2020 was COVID. Mm -hmm. And so everything got delayed to the end of the year. Uh, California does a thing. They did a selective review every year. They do, the, they do their measurement in the fall, and then they go to schools in the spring. They take a collection of the schools, 
and they consistently find a several percent increase in all of the vaccination rates because you've got kindergartners that either didn't have the paperwork by the November 1 deadline or they didn't uh, or they've simply gotten that extra shot. Mm-hmm. So a huge driver of this quote unquote lower rate than they want is the fact they're measuring five-year-olds for shots that they're not overdue till they're seven too early in the school year. So, yeah, I mean, let's look at the two in 2018, 2019, as you said, they claim um, that the MMR completion rate in Washington state was 90.8 and the exemption rate was 3.1. The next year, 2019, 2020, the Completion rate had risen to 94.4, and the exemption rate had dropped to 1.8. So the difference between what it was the previous year, the exemption rate of 3.1 minus 1.8, help me with the math, that's uh, 2. Well, that's, that what they're, that's their 5.4. See, they're, they're, they're saying that the, the rate went up, the, 98, the 90.8 up to 94.4. But yeah, the, if but if the um, if the exemption rate only went down one one point one point two one point three, yeah, how, what, you add one point three to ninety point eight. It, it doesn't get. Only, it that's, the, that's exactly what it I'm absolute, saying. What it doesn't add up. Okay, then we do that again. You do that the next year. It goes to ninety four point five, and it went down to well. Twenty twenty one is weird. They they had now, it go if you down look at, point two, and but then it only changed point. But that was during COVID, and then the next well, year, it's like you said, it went all. It went to. What well, it's weird. It went down again. Well, um, okay, yeah. So that and and what this what this demonstrates is that completion rate is a function of the clerical Paperwork. yes the clerical efficiency of the school and uh, how much emphasis is being placed on getting the paperwork done and all kinds of things separate from the the only way to measure exemption impact on exemption uh, on vaccination rates is 100 minus its nominal value. Mm-hmm. Anything below that number is is not affected by exemption. So in 2018-19, 100 minus 3.1 is 96.9. So any 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 rate movement below 96.9 was not could not be related to exemptions. So this is that's that's and, and again, they have to do this in order to make it look like there's a problem to be fixed. They're and, still right. They're still trying to push. But Carl, the, the state of Missouri, for the first time in decades, just got the religious exemption. So we got things moving in the other direction across this great nation of ours. So they can do all the state of manipulation they want. But um, anyway, I'm going to let you keep going. How many more slides okay. do you have? I want to make sure I don't cut, cut you short. Oh, I. Well, it depends on if we stop it, but I, I got a bunch, but we can, I, I can always stop, but here oh, we are. We so time. if I go to the next one, so, and this is the simple, so you have the, this is a vertical bar graph and the blue is the complete. So we have 90, this is for the, uh, all of the vaccines, not just the MMR for kindergarten. But what happens is, is that uh, if you, is that complete and exemption are independent of each other because of the existence of the conditional and out of compliance. Mm-hmm. So you can you can increase 
the exemption rate, but also increase complete because you reduce the out of compliance. Mm -hmm. And this is, this is their manipulation, is that shifting percentages between not exempt out of compliance and conditional to complete statuses is not related to exemption ability, uh, availability. Mm-hmm. So then uh, this is from that uh, vice, the meeting in December 15th. So this is showing, uh, this is the immunization status of all K-12 students over that same period. And that blue line uh, tracing across the top that's going from left, it has 89%, 87.3, 88.6, 88.8, 91, 92, 97, 91.7. So that, uh, and then at the bottom, you see the <clears throat> another parallel line at 5%, 5.3, 4.9. So if you, again, you take 100% and subtract the exemption rate. So in 21, 22, the exemption rate is 3.5%, the overall exemption rate from all the vaccines. 100 minus 3.5% is 96.5%. Mm-hmm. Yet, the complete rate for all vaccines is only 91.7. That's because you have 4.8% out of compliance. So that's where, that's where all of the gains are to be made. Mm-hmm. And uh, and uh, but they don't want to do that because then they have to admit that we have already over 95 percent coverage. Now, the next slide shows. But then when you look at each of these individual vaccine series as itself, we have 95 percent coverage. So if you go to so now we're looking at horizontal bar graphs. And this is uh, that this is the difference between showing an individual vaccine versus the cumulative Mm-hmm. So this is showing that 90, uh, 95.9% of students in the K-12 system have two MMR injections. 94.4% have DTP. 95.2% have the polio. 951 have uh, hepatitis B and 94.6 have varicella. Mm-hmm. But enough of those have are missing maybe one that when you mix it all together, only 91% have all of them, yeah. but by individual, you're right, individual vaccine series. Right. So this is the other way. How do I make my 95% vaccinated population look bad? Well, you mix them all together and you do a comprehensive measurement. Yeah, and you say they're not, If and you use, you cite complete. Complete. Um, it, yeah, complete. And I, I want to tell, um, you know, those ping, watching this now, it, don't think that this just pertains to Washington state. So when Carl figured this out, when he saw California doing this, those he knew they were going to bring it up to Washington. Here. Oh, you do? Okay, you keep yeah. going. But I, I wanted people not <laughs> yeah. in Washington state to pay attention because they are doing this in your state. Because if you still have a personal exemption or you've got the religious exemption, you've got to know this is what they do to manipulate the numbers, right? This is what exactly. they do. Yep. And, you know, I say this as an individual who wants the numbers to truly in real life, in real data go down because... of children in this nation cannot safely get 100% of the shots on the school required list. We know that it's not safe for every child. These high numbers are being achieved by sacrificing children who are getting all of the shots who should not get all of the shots. You know, I've reached a stage where I don't think kids should get any of the shots. I believe in, in, um, 
in nutrition and sanitation and early treatment protocols and new and improved treatment protocols such as ivermectin, which seems like it may, I'm not a doctor, not a scientist, but it could work with other RNA viruses according to some of the top researchers, vitamin C, vitamin D, all of these things. That's, you know, having that said, I'm with Carl in that I don't want one kid to die or to have his entire health undermined um, to protect my kid or to potentially protect my grandchild someday. You know, our, our health, our personal medical freedom does not end where their product failure begins. Am I right? Okay. Mm -hmm. So this is important for everybody. It, It seems at times kind of dry, but holy cow, when you see a legislator begin to see when they're shown presentations like this from their own health department, and then Carl swoops in and says, hey, look at they did to your numbers, they're shocked, and then they're mad, <laughs> and then they want right. to do something, right? Right, yeah. the good ones. The good ones, the good <laughs> ones, yeah. Well, it's always that, yeah. All right, so is this atypical? No, it's part of the standard playbook. So this is California 2015, the SB 277. So this is their version of what we were just looking at. And they have uh, the blue, this is a uh, horizontal bar chart for the listeners. And that way you have uh, in 2014-15, there's a blue bar that shows 90.4%. And it's, uh, the code says it's uh, all required immunizations. And then they were blaming this 90.4% on the exemption rate. Except on this same chart, it shows that the exemption rate was only 2.5%. And that this... 90.4% 90.4% was being caused by 6.9% conditional entrance. And conditional entrants are, again, those that are waiting for their second MMR or their fourth uh, IPV or their fifth DTP or their second chickenpox shot. So California Department of Health was using complete for all required immunization statistic for coverage and allowing people to infer that the exemption rate was some 9.6%. That does two things. It sounds alarming, and 9.6% also sounds like a real improvement could be achieved if uh, these students could be coerced into vaccinating. The real cause of the less than 100% minus the exemption rate was the conditional status. And then that's a little more detailed slide. We don't need to do that. I have already explained that. But what happened was, after the law passed, then the... uh, This is from their own documentation... The year after, uh, SB 277 had a one-year grace period, yet somehow the complete rate went up significantly prior to its implementation. And that was because, as listed in their own California Department of Public Health document, is that uh, the state threatened to withhold funding from schools with high conditional entrance. In addition, annual financial and compliance audits of local education agencies for the 2015-16 and 2016-17 school years have been inspecting reimbursement for attendance at schools with higher rates of conditional entrance. It is likely that these measures to promote compliance have contributed to the decreases in students reported as conditional and increases in those reported as having received all required vaccines. So the key here, as you pointed out earlier, is there's a difference between vaccination and reported vaccination. Mm-hmm. Is that, uh, and you know, in, in, is that, it is, the rates are always higher than we have documented because it's possible to not document an, uh, an event that happened and it's impossible to not 
document something that didn't happen. So the rates, the, everything we see is always the absolute minimum. So then this is another version of that. So, you know, the, uh, what they did was uh, in 1415, the law passed and then they ground down on the schools and they were able to claim that there was this great big increase, but that was before the law even came into place. And again, they just really, they hammered the schools and said, look, if you have a high compliance rate, we're not going to pay you for all your students. It's called an FTE, full-time uh, full enrollment, and that's what your funding is based on. You know, it reminds me of what they did when the polio vaccines first came out. They changed mm -hmm. the, um, the definition, the criteria for being diagnosed with polio. Yes. And... So just changing the definition alone, even without moving a vaccine out there, it, it dropped how many cases, it's, it's right, they just yes. changed the definition. And lo and behold, um, all this, as, as James Lyons Weiler likes to call it, it's statistical sham wizardry. Right. <laughs> or he has another one, science-like activities. Yeah, science-like well, yeah, activities. And, and yeah, part of what they did was they said, well, they changed how long did your paralyzed episode have to persist. So in the beginning, it was 24 hours. And then if you weren't still paralyzed after 90 days, then it didn't count there. Yeah. And again, yeah. And, it, and actually people most recently have experience with this related to COVID because mm -hmm. I heard a joke the other day, which was what, what's the difference or, or what does a person who never have a COVID shot and somebody who's had four COVID shots have in common? Neither will be ever be fully vaccinated because the, <laughs> the criteria is changing all of the time. Yeah. And so you can go from one to the other. And so well, one of the things that they cite in the, in the report is that the medical, the medical exemption didn't increase. And they were concerned about that because when SB 277 passed, the medical exemption rate did go up. And part of it was because in part of selling SB 277 to the legislature who were concerned about children not being forced into vaccinating, they shouldn't be. Then the proponents of the bill, Dr. Pan and all, were saying, oh, no, there will be freely and readily available medical exemptions for those people that didn't. So why didn't the medical exemption increase in Washington is that universal vaccination requires the perception that vaccine injury is so rare that it is only theoretical. Risk of injury should never play a part in the decision to vaccinate. So when you have a uh, risk and benefit discussion with a healthcare provider. It is the risk of the infection and the benefit of the injection. It's never the risk of the uh, injection. So how important is control of the injury narrative is SB 276, which was the law that then was tightening down medical exemptions. And so they were calling it, and in the lead up for this, and again, this was coordinated media along with the the public health system is loophole in California vaccine law leads to rise in medical exemptions. Loophole, it's, it's part of the law. It's not a loophole. Mm -hmm. So what is a medical exemption? It's a medical professional certifying in their accredited capacity and their expert opinion that a vaccine caused an injury or that the risk of a vaccine is such that it should not be administered. Now, exemption writing doctors are being accused of monetizing their medical license. That sounds bad, doesn't it? But that's the whole purpose of having a medical license. So then, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so that you can monetize yeah. your expertise. And what do they call an incentive to vaccinate? Like the incentive yes. that the government and Medicare, Medicaid do. We got two minutes, Carl. Okay, well, we'll do this. And then if you want to hold me over, I got more after this. Oh, but cool. I can wrap this up. Yeah, yeah, I love it. 
So we have, uh, this is just a feature from a practice management, immunizations, how to protect patients and the bottom line. However, my practice of three physicians and two nurse practitioners enjoys a steady stream of revenue from immunizations. Often vaccine reimbursement is exceeding that for the rest of the visit. And then it's a breakdown here on how you can get a $300 administration reimbursement for the two month well baby visit. And uh, that, those typically don't take an hour. And it explains how the coding works. And then uh, from the Association of State and Territorial Health Officers is that the pharmaceutical companies, this back in 2015, were making uh, $1,800 a kid just in the vaccine cost. So how do we know that they assault on? So the reason that the uh, medical exemptions didn't go up in Washington is because everyone was warning the doctors, don't start to write medicals or you're going to have the medical board uh, examining your license. And that was part of the law in California was if you wrote five exemptions, you were automatically hauled before the board and given a review. Yeah. I think this is a good place here to wind up. If we want to, uh, place a hold on that, I'm going to remove that and oops, do that. Um, so great information. And again, everyone, it seems sometimes a little bit dry, but it's also very exciting because it shows the manipulation and that you just can't trust what they're telling us. Uh, we're going to take a break. Um, when we come back, Carl's going to be with us, yay, to, to wrap up. And then we've got some other news uh, to bring you. So you've been listening to an Informed Life Radio on 1150 AM KKNW. We'll be back in a few minutes. If you're looking for a publication that delivers honest takes and critical insights into the issues of our day, then look no further than The Flame Paper. The Flame Paper is written for the people, by the people, who aren't afraid to challenge a mainstream narrative, be it health care, voter fraud, political correctness, or even the one world government. The Flame is full of timely articles, reports, and expert advice written by freedom-loving, truth-telling experts, journalists, and concerned citizens. To subscribe, go to the Flame USA. During this unprecedented response to an infection outbreak, it has been made very clear that shutting down lives and businesses is not sustainable or repeatable. We've also learned that it's unnecessary. Treatments exist and always exist. For 99% of the population, nutrients and oxidative therapies that support the immune system and improve symptoms are always available to address viral infections. For the less than 1% who need more, inexpensive, unpatentable drugs can be added to the nutrient therapies to improve outcomes. It's time each and every one of us empower ourselves with this knowledge. We need not ever bring our lives to a halt again. We can both save lives and retain the liberty that nourishes us body and soul. Learn more at healthyimmunitynow.org. That's healthyimmunitynow.org. Informed Choice Washington is a nonprofit organization that advocates for healthy immunity, medical freedom, and fully informed medical consent. The right to make medical choices without coercion is fundamental to our civil liberties and a basic principle in all human rights declarations. To learn more, tune in each Friday from 3 to 5 p.m. to an Informed Life Radio and visit the website informchoicewa.org. It's time to take a stand for medical freedom. Go to informchoicewa.org today. We need a revolution. There's only one solution. I need somebody to show me, somebody to show me the love. 
Hello and welcome back to an Informed Life Radio on 1150 AM KKNW and streaming to CHD TV. So glad you could join us. This is our second hour and we still got Carl Kanthak, at least for a while. If you can stay the whole hour, that'd be great. You probably have to go teach a class or can I keep I, you for a little while? I can do about a half hour, I think. Okay. Yeah. Well, stay as long as you can. I, we, we don't know what happened to Javier. He was supposed to be here. So I hope he's just like, well, I don't hope he's stuck in traffic, but I hope it's something as as minor as Monday, stuck in traffic correct. or work or something Tell mundane. You, you know, it's beautiful. <laughs> it's beautiful in this part of the country right now. Oh, maybe he's playing hooky. So. Yeah. That's all right. He deserves some sunshine, so. Um, but Carl, in the first hour, you went through this new paper that claimed the impossible, just looking at their own charts. There's just no way that a 1.3% reduction in exemption use can result in a 5.4% increase in complete. Exactly. Mathematically impossible. Mathematically impossible. And for the, for them to even the fact that they're getting away with it. So um, um, you want to go ahead and um, I'm going to add you to the stream. Yeah. You can go ahead and do a few more. And then I want to talk about while I still gotcha, um, you know, how we're going to distribute this. Let's get proactive. Let's get it out there, you know, because we've, you know, around the country um, in, in every newspaper um, and lobbyists in every legislature they're going around now and they're beginning to arm twist and put fear and say hey it worked in california it worked in washington right. let's do it here so we need to um, get this out and get this ahead of the game yeah it's uh well they're used to nobody ever questions or pushes back any of it you know mm -hmm. i sat down i'm gonna show uh, uh, right after i got a few more slides on this and then i've got the i'll i'll do the mmr rate fraud that they passed this bill with Mm -hmm. And I gave the entire packet to a journalist at the Clark County Public Health Board meeting, the newspaper guy right there, and he flat out told me, I will never print anything that goes against the Department of Health. I go, I'm showing you that this yeah. is a this is a complete farce. He goes, why? Well, I can't I'm, I can't I will not print anything. So, so what, what we you, were, yeah. yeah, well, and th what you just said is so important, Carl. We got to pause yeah. here a minute because. And then recently, uh, Governor Inslee gave a speech in which he thanked the media for working with him, yeah. for working with his administration. This is, I mean, is it, it to me, it borders on treason and somehow and at least undermining well, our it's a great First Republic. Amendment violation. You know, right. It's a First Amendment violation. First, First Amendment violation for the media in this nation to be serving government agencies they are supposed to yeah. be is it i always forget fourth or fifth estate one of the estates yeah, the fourth, yeah. the, fourth, fourth the estate, other yeah. branch of government they're supposed to stand between you're never supposed to trust the government always ask the hard questions and for them to be blatantly the government thanking the media yeah. and then the media telling you carl it doesn't matter how true this is i will never print it that's yep, one of the most was, uh, frightening things I've ever heard, right? We should right. we should all <laughs> Well no. and the kid looked you know, I mean he was I'm sure he was he looked fifteen. I'm sure he's older, but you know. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> everybody looks but uh no, it, it it is. It's uh you know, we're seeing it, it's Twitter files, it's the uh you know, all all of these different uh, manipulations and you know, the the press, the, the journalism is the I believe the only industry mm -hmm. 
if you will, listed in the Constitution. Wow. Never thought about it that way. Yeah. But that's true. So so what we were talking about then is that and one of one of the things mentioned in this report is that they were pleased that the medical exemptions didn't go up. And so before the break, we talked about how, you know, in California, they did see an increase in medical exemptions after they eliminated uh, the non-medical exemptions. Mm -hmm. And then they have since passed legislation that subjects a doctor, any any doctor that writes five or more medical exemptions is automatically hauled before their medical board. So everybody that put the entire nation's uh, doctors on notice that you do not write medical exemptions. And most doctors that belong to any type of a uh, uh, group, then the group says, no, we're not going to write them. Yeah. So and then uh, uh, so what what I and what I'm showing here is that, you know, they're they are taking revoking the license of doctors who write medical exemptions in California. Yes. And so what I'm showing here is that this is just an example that in King, King, King County doctor on probation that uh, uh, is uh, having sexual abuse or sexual contact with a client or patient, sexual misconduct and abuse. And you have these uh, doctors who are working while impaired selling medications out the side door and sexually assaulting patients regularly get remediation and probation. Good heavens. And yet here is the Washington Post revoked the license of any doctor who opposes vaccination. <laughs> Claremont doctors medical licenses at risk over vaccine exemptions. Now, uh, you know, what would a proportional response be to a doctor who was incompetent to write medical exemptions? You would revoke their ability to issue exemptions. Mm -hmm. Instead, they're attacking their entire ability to work in any capacity. And that shows you this is not about that they're writing bad exemptions. It means they don't want them to write any exemptions. Otherwise, they would say, OK, you can continue to practice. You're just not allowed to do vaccine stuff anymore. Yeah. And then, of course, here's a. Uh, uh, that uh, ex legislation closes the fake medical exemption loophole. There's no, it's not a loophole, it's, it's a provision. Okay, so universal vaccination requires a perception that vaccine injury is so rare that it is only theoretical. The possibility of injury should never be a part of your decision to vaccinate yourself or your family. Then if vaccines are harmless, then so are mandates. Mm -hmm. If making, uh, it is making someone do something for their own good, like eating their vegetables or practicing piano or wearing a seatbelt. Now, would a seatbelt mandate be proper if one in 1,250 uses the belt malfunctioned and strangled you to the point of going to the emergency room? <laughs> uh, because measles containing vaccines hospitalize from one in 3,500 to one in 1,250, depending upon product. Mm -hmm. And then the next slide is showing this is from a survey, a study done by the Vaccine Safety Data Link, showing that uh, uh, it's one of my favorite slides, and it has the severe spike that if you use a, the MMRV 4-in-1 Pro Quad, measles, mumps, rubella, with the chicken pox combined as an individual injection, that puts 1 in 1,250 children into the ER. The MMR plus a chicken pox vaccine at the same visit puts 1 in 2,500 children into the ER, and a straight MMR will put 1 in 3,500 into the MMR. And so that's where this this is the... Uh, what I've found over the years is that they are increasingly deleting any quantification so that you can't calculate, oh, well, I know that this many injections are being made. And if I know that it, out of that, out of X number, 
I can tell you, for example, in Washington State, we have 83,000 kids at each age level. And mm -hmm. based on this, I know that, that the MMRV is MMR or MMRV is putting 160 kids into the ER every year. And so we should expect that to have some type of an impact on vaccine uptake. Mm -hmm. And then this is the uh, MMR and varicella vaccine. This is the discussing the options. It's for the healthcare provider. And so uh, that these vaccine combinations provoke 15 to 22% of children to have a fever in excess of 102. 3% go back to the office for a fever visit. That's where the parents are like, are you sure this is okay? My kid seems really, really sick. And it sends one in 2,500 to one in 1,250 into the emergency room. Mm -hmm. So these are not benign products. So then, uh, and then I'm just gonna wrap up here with the 2019 Clark County K-12 uh, MMR rate misrepresentation. So uh, Clark, uh, this is a slide from Clark, uh, the public health page. Clark County declares public health emergency due to measles outbreak, 18th of January. And, uh, and then the next is the uh, Jay Inslee declaring the, uh, and he, he declare, ended up doing a statewide emergency for cases in Clark County and one in King County. And in many ways, I think this was potentially a dry run for the other ones because it just went on and on and on. Uh, the actual proclamation here. And then this is from the National Association of Counties, ripe for contagion. The state of Washington allows exemptions from some or all vaccines for personal, religious, or medical reasons, though the legislature is considering a bill that would ban those exemptions for the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine. The county's 78% vaccination rate falls below the 95% target for building herd immunity for nearly 457,000 Clark residents. And then yeah, this was, the pictures. <laughs> yeah, that, that one kid's had the measles since like 1918. Um, as, <laughs> as the count reaches 23, health experts expect measles outbreak to hit Oregon. This is from the OPB, Oregon Public Broadcasting, PBS. And then the quote here from Clark County Public Health Officer Alan Melnick, 22% of students are not vaccinated for it. So from those articles, what does it appear that the Clark County MMR exemption rate? 22%. Mm -hmm. But what was the actual rate? Mm -hmm. The law which established the school requirements in 1980 established the Certificate of Immunization Status Report. It tracks every individual student down to each of the 17 injections required, recording the administration date exemption or out of compliance. And then that's the reference of the law. And then if a student does not have a CIS, they are prohibited, prohibiting the child's presence uh, for lack of that documentation. And then at, uh, this is just a copy of the CIS. At kindergarten enrollment, parents list and certify the day, month, and year of each required injection or certificate of exemption for opted-out injections on a hard copy form that follows the student through high school graduation. This is the basis of the official school vaccination records. What did the CIS system lists for Clark County, the MMR exemption rate was only 5.4%, meaning that the remaining 94.6% of Clark County K-12 students either have two MMR injections or are in the process of receiving two MMR injections. And again, because of the, and the press, nobody even questions. These guys are so used to this, they'll come out and do something as blatant as say, oh, we're, we only have a 78% rate. So then right. I provable because they know nobody in the media yeah, will nobody's going to question them. They can say that. whatever they want. So then this is just a screen capture from the school county school immunization dashboards 
which uh, Clark County K-12 MMR, and it shows mm -hmm. the exemption rate of only 5.4%, and uh, it says it's reliable. <laughs> and then the, uh, and, and, and in the state, we had only the 3.1% exemption rate that mm -hmm. year. And then uh, what was the origin of the 78% MMR rate? Dr. Melnick, Clark County Public Health, Washington State Department of Public Health, Washington State Secretary Wiesman failed to use the Certificate of Immunization Status School Attendance Tracking System that was established by the law. Instead, they chose for the first time to use an alternative, less accurate, voluntary online tracking widget called the Washington Immunization Information System. And then I have a screen capture showing that the Clark County Public Health was citing that as the 78%, the source of the 78, and then below that, contrasting that with the school reports showing that there was 93 point, so the, that year the sixth grade was documented at 93.2% coverage and the kindergarten at 84.5, but that is because 84.5 of the kindergartners have two doses yeah. and the balance between that and the exemption rate are still waiting for their second dose. Yeah. But that's the same baloney again. And then, so I had never heard of this Washington immunization at that point, and I'd been doing this for seven years and hadn't, ever encountered this IIS before. Mm -hmm. So it kind of caught me off guard. And, uh, and at that time in Clark County, only 130 student school participated in the IIS from Clark County. And this uh, is a technical note that describes that the IIS is a system for healthcare providers. It is not designed to track K-12 student rates. So what happened was is that you had county employees deliberately misrepresenting the material fact of how many Clark County K-12 system students had received MMR injections in order to support the legislation that they support. Mm -hmm. And I have, uh, you know, I mean, I have a full-on uh, analysis of this, and uh, I gave it to the auditor's office, and they were worthless too. So <laughs> that's a whole other one. But yeah. then, so w one of the ways I got traction by this was to, sh to point out to the Clark County Department of Public Health is that I'm sitting there in the meeting, it's on YouTube, but uh, is that uh, I'm showing Dr. Melnick is claiming that only 78% of Clark County K-12 students have injections, uh, have M two MMR injections, but the hard copy paper documentation trail in the school say it's 93, 94%. That means the only way what he's saying could be correct is if the parents of 15% of the students are writing down the day, month, and year of injections their children never received, which is absolutely absurd. That, yeah, consistently year after year, yes, about 15% yeah, yeah. of parents make it up. Is, yes, that's the which only is way. And that they know they made it up. Yeah, that it, yeah. <laughs> And then, and then that, that's the next part of this is that you don't wake up one day in 2019 and realize, oh my God, our K-12 system has only 78%. Yeah. Yeah. The only way that the 2019 senior class could be at 17, uh, 78% is if 13 years prior in 2006, when they started school, they were at 78% and only stayed at 78 for the 
following 12 years as they got through school and each class following them. And where the heck were you, Dr. Melnick? Because this happened on your watch. Right. And, and you then, don't become unvaccinated as you move that's right. through the system. It's, the rate it, can only go up. Yeah. And I have, you know, and there's newspaper articles where he's talking about uh, Clark County's 94% vaccination rate for yeah. MMR. Yeah. So then this is just some of the documentation I did to, to demonstrate that. Yeah. And well, then the... Uh, yeah, Carl, you, I, I think we've probably, you know, hit this pretty good. Yeah. Um, like any final closing words on this particular subject here? I, well, what I, I have a, I don't know if you saw the nacho slides I emailed. Uh, I don't I, think I saw the, if they were new, I don't know that I have. Okay. Well, I've got about six slides and then I can wrap. Okay, let's do it. All right, well, let's just look at this. So this is a summary of the public health policy objectives. So why would these people be misrepresenting the data like this. It's because they belong to these various organizations. And so that one of them is the National Association of City and County Health Officers. And they have a policy and advocacy. And they have as formal adopted policy, 1601 is school and child care immunization requirements, that they want the entire ASIP schedule to be required for school and daycare and everything else. And that NASHO supports requirements that only allow medical exemptions due to allergy or contradiction. Mm -hmm. Then they have another policy that, uh, this is just showing the difference between the ASIP schedule and the school schedule, which is the ASIP schedule is significantly more robust. Then you have comp comp uh, 1703, comprehensive adolescent health regarding minor consent laws that enable mature adolescents under the age of 18 to make informed care decisions regarding their health care for services, especially related to comp contraception, right. da, 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 da. Right. Then so have, I, I want to pause for just a second because all across the nation, a lot of laws went into place over the many years to allow minors to make their own medical decisions, despite the fact in so many other areas, especially in criminal law, they have all the science saying that minors are not mentally mature enough to make these sort of important decisions. But I'm proud to say here in the state of Tennessee, we passed this year the Mature Minor Clarification Act that says, no, if you are a minor, you cannot get a vaccine without parental consent and approval, point blank. No. Well, the exceptions are that you're an emancipated Correct. Um, right. Or you're in the military. I mean, those sort of things. But um, so there's pushback. And I'm really glad to see this because like a couple of years ago, when we first started looking at this, Carl, you know, th there were certain things in, that were happening and things were going in one bad direction. Correct. But since you started all this, look at Missouri's now got religious exemptions. They haven't had them for decades. So and right. we just clarified the Mature Minor Act that says, no, 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 no. You the parents have to weigh in. And um you know, the pushback is happening. The revolution is happening. It's very exciting. But we've got these systemic, very powerful public health entities that um, that still have playing these games because they want everybody uh, to get these shots. And then right. um, go ahead, because then I want to I want to remind people of what is starting to be admitted um, here. Go ahead. Yes. Well, and then, yeah. The, and, the, and, you know, it's like the. A child that cannot consent to have their ears pierced can receive a vaccine yeah. or get a tattoo. That they the next... created an entire vaccine injury compensation fund. There's no ear piercing compensation fund. That's right. That's Although right. sometimes piercings can lead to infection and yeah. death. I'm not saying it's completely, but. Um, so then the anyway. next 
Next policy is comprehensive immunization programs addressing immunization across the lifespan. Immunization program ad addresses all stages of life comprising elements listed above with the goal of increasing overall immunization rates and reducing morbidity so that uh, uh, would substantially improve the framework for delivering immunizations to ex expectant mothers, children, adolescents, and adults. And going uh, immunization systems, so the immunization information systems, the achievement and maintenance of an appropriate immunization levels across the lifespan requires assessment and monitoring. Given the mobility of the American population in terms of geography, insurance coverage, and use of medical care, it is imperative that an interoperable and coordinated local and state level IIS are supported by the federal government. So this is a federal system. that It's going to be a it's a state system that's interoperable, which makes it a federal system. Right. And at the last Washington State Department of Health Vaccine Advisory Committee meeting, uh, we've got somebody looking into this. They boasted that Washington State is the first IIS, you know, immunization information system yep. to coordinate with the Department of Defense. There we go. There we go. So, and then we yeah. have the access to school-based data. So right. local health departments should be allowed access to health information from education records. Wait. Go ahead. Recommend, we need to recommend, uh, uh, you know, that they need to amend FERPA so that, uh, you know, when you, when you put this all, the end goal of this collection of policies is to have a mandatory cradle to grave national vaccination program to participate in society, a HEPI injection within 24 hours of birth to flu shots in the senior center a program where children are encouraged to bypass their parents. The vaccination program will encourage all ACIP recommended vaccines. Every system will, every citizen will have a mandatory enrollment in state immunization information systems that are interoperable and will function as a national tracking system. Every interface with healthcare or other aspects of government will provoke a query into your vaccination record and any missing vaccines will be flagged and services may be conditioned upon their administration. Wow. Excellent work, Carl. I'm just so grateful for you. Um, yeah, yeah. It's not to an outlier. No, no not virtually at all. all medical trade groups and public health employee associations share these policy positions. So your tax dollars, my tax dollars, even here in Tennessee, pay for public health officials to be educated, um, to attend committee uh, or conferences with pharma pushing these agendas to remove your right to say no to a medical injection. That's, that's what they want. Right. And so the AMA, the AAP, the American College of Obstructions and Gynecologists are all on the record having policy, the American Nursing Association, the AAFP, the uh, uh, AMA has a litigation center that will uh, come, you know, they'll, they'll drop in, airdrop into any time yeah. there's a case. And then you have the public health employee associations of which the uh, uh, CSTE, so we talked about Nacho, that's why I pulled them because their policies are real easy to capture. Yeah. You have the Council of State and Territorial Epidemiologists. You have the Association of State and Territorial Health Officers. And then of course, AIM, our favorite. And the head of every single immunization department belongs to AIM, which is a blatant collaboration with the vaccine industry. Mm -hmm. And then the... Uh, uh, so that, yeah, that was it. But that was what to, to, that's why. So all of those policies, these, so the people, I, I, if the ones that know they're fudging the numbers, they're fudging the numbers because they're trying to achieve these policy, yeah. policy objectives, you know, yeah. and they think they're, they think they're doing the right thing. 
by, uh, you know, but if you can't sell it on the facts, then don't sell it. No, uh, if you can't sell it, I love that. If you can't sell it on the facts, don't sell it. I'm going to show you this. So as we well know, and I love that you brought up that whole utilitarian and, and it's that the greater good, they're going to sacrifice some for the great, for the greater good. Yeah. Well, first of all, we now know because of the independent researchers, that the greater good does not benefit from mass vaccination programs. We know that mm -hmm. overall it has led to chronic disease. And here we have the CDC just this year publishing a study, association between aluminum exposure from vaccines before age 24 months and persistent asthma at age 24 to 59 months. They fully acknowledge that for every 1,000 micrograms of aluminum adjuvant an infant is exposed to, their risk of persistent asthma um, rises 17 to 38%. Oh my God. So they, they're admitting this. Why are they admitting this about aluminum adjuvant vaccines? Because, Carl, how do you begin to sell a new product? That's First, right. you trash the old, and we know they yep. want to go to this even more dangerous mRNA platform. Yep. That is so frightening. You know, everything about the mRNA platform is it just doesn't work. You cannot contain this wild animal they have created. You know, they they want it to target one thing, but it it the cacophony of injuries that it unleashes. It's just it's not sustainable, needs to go. But hey, they let the cat out of the bag and they admitted right. that asthma. So you can see they're they're about to go there. And we know from again, from these independent studies um, that have been done by uh, Dr. Paul and others, that the interference, the exposure to the vaccine ingredients, the skewing of the developing infant immune system um, has led to chronic diseases. And we've got the Abby studies and the Abby studies, um, right. you know, the pro-vaccine guy in Africa. And he was so dismayed to look back in history and see that um, these shots seem to suppress your immune system in a way that it leads to tenfold increase in all-cause mortality. You might not get the diphtheria right. or tetanus or pertussis, but you're dying of all these other things because of the impact on the immune system from exposure to these products. So is there a better way? Well, over the past several decades, we have learned how the immune system works. We understand that it's, well, Actually, I shouldn't say that. I should say we've learned more about what how the immune right. system works. It's still way more complex than we fully understand. But we do know that if you fully support the immune system and you you do treatment early and you make sure you've got the vitamin D and the nutrients on board and you've got some safe time-tested drugs and you've got ox oxygen therapies, you know, and if you need to, you do have the bigger guns that you can, right. you know, go to. But we know how to address this. We know natural immunity is far more broad, durable, and robust. And, and you know, it's, but instead of embracing all of the tools in the toolbox, governments around the world and public health agencies around the world are so invested in the vaccine approach yes. to this. And now, heads up, everybody, RSV vaccines are headed your way. They've already licensed them for the older folks. And it's very concerning. Um, I wanted to show you. Just let me know when you need to go, okay, Carl? And I want I to sit about, through. Huh? I got I got about three minutes. You got about three minutes. Oh, that's well. I was just yeah. Yeah. You know well, the, uh, the 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 this yeah the it's kind of yeah. The, yeah, the I know you got idea, it. Well, the whole the whole idea that that the, that we're that we know about the the immune system. I mean, wasn't it just recently they found that connection from the brain to the gut and. 
you know, they're right. the idea that they that this is a done deal or settled science or anything. There's there, there's no such thing, and yeah. the hubris of us. If you look back 400 years and look at what the average average educated person thought was true, mm -hmm. and we would laugh at that. And for us to think that if a person 400 years in the future from us now looking back at us is not going to be equally amused, then we are uh, <laughs> we're, we're too full of ourselves. Yeah. But the well, things that that were that were correct then are correct now. Clean water, clean food, clean air, and uh, you know a healthy life. Well, Bernadette, I just want to say I appreciate the opportunity to come in and and uh, I hope that people are able to get this. I do realize it's wonky, and one of the ways that they're able to get away with this is because it's just complicated enough. You have to think about it a little bit, and that's, uh, you know, and then the, the challenge that our legislators have is that you have someone coming in who's a uh, health officer or the head of some type of a public-private partnership and has a bunch of letters after their name. And the last thing, uh, my most famous slide in my presentations is when a legislator is shown a chart by a a trusted health officer or person that does this, how many of them are thinking, gosh, I wonder if this guy is intentionally misleading me. Mm. And if we can get them to take that position and start to just do a little math in their head, like uh, how does a 1.3 reduction in this add to a 5.4? That doesn't make any sense. Could no. you explain that? Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, very good. And, and uh, if, if people want to share your presentation, are you going to put it on your Substack page for people to... Uh, yeah, I should. Yeah. I, yeah, I need to do that. I've got a couple that are floating around, too, that I need to cool. get up there. Well, yeah, thank so, you so much. Yeah, carlcanthak.substack.com. And yes, keep educating. Uh, go teach them kids, Carl. All right. Thank you. <laughs> Bye. Thank you. Wow. So, well, I guess I'm going to be loaning it here for the last 25 minutes. Um, but I've got a few things I'm going to uh, move to the stop sharing here that, that I can talk to uh, listeners about. Uh, looking at the news, I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of show you Bernadette's world a little bit here. So I'm gonna give you an idea of the sort of things that I have been paying attention to this week. So one of them is let's go right over here. Um, let's see, get this coming back in. Add to stream. So there is a study. Um, the latest study about the possible toxicity of the use of face masks. Now, at the beginning of, of all of this and in, in early 2020, when the face mask um, orders, mandates, everything was beginning to come down, um, Informed Choice Washington wrote to the Washington State Department of Health and to the school districts the, at the state level and said, where's the evidence that mask wearing is safe? They came back and said, well, gosh, people have been wearing veils and other face coverings, and there's no evidence that that wearing masks is unsafe in any way. Well, you know, that wasn't true. They didn't even look. Um, there were studies of women who wear veils in other um, nations uh, for religious reasons, and it showed that they had uh, reduced respiratory capacity for always covering their faces. And these veils are a lot looser than a face mask right up against the mouth and impairing the breathing. Um, so this was always a massive experiment. And it's just ridiculous, the sort of studies that were being presented claiming safety. Um, so here's the latest. Uh, let me go back here to um, so I can read it a little bit more closely. Where did I find this? Um, okay, so 
The, uh, I'll just read the abstract to you. So uh, during the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic, face masks have become one of the most important ubiquitous factors affecting human breathing. It increases the resistance and dead space volume leading to a rebreathing of CO2. So far, this phenomenon and possible implications on early life has not been evaluated in depth. I mean, again, this is me not quoting again, massive experiments, especially on children, never before in human history have we put face masks on little children for seven, eight or more hours a day, five, six, seven days a week. Insane. Um, so their method was as part of a scoping review, literature was systematically reviewed regarding CO2 exposure and face mask use. The results Fresh air has around 0.04% CO2, while wearing masks more than five minutes bears a possible chronic exposure to carbon dioxide of 1.41 to 3.2% of the inhaled air. Although the buildup is usually within the short-term exposure limits, long-term exceedances and consequences must be considered due to experimental data. U.S. Navy toxicity experts set the exposure limits for submarines carrying a female crew to 0.8% CO2 based on animal studies, which indicated an increased risk for stillbirths. I'm going to read that again. The U.S. Navy toxicity experts set the exposure limits for submarines carrying a female crew to 0.8% CO2 based on animal studies, which indicated increased risk for stillbirths. Additionally, mammals who were chronically exposed to 0.3% CO2, the experimental data demonstrate a teratogenicity with, I, sorry, I can't say that very well, with irreversible neuron damage in the offspring. Reduced spatial learning caused by brainstem neuron apoptosis and reduced circulating levels of the insulin-like growth factor 1. With significant impact on three readout parameters, this chronic 0.3% CO2 exposure has to be defined as being toxic. Additional data exists on the exposure of chronic 0.3% CO2 in adolescent mammals causing neuron destruction, which includes less activity, increased anxiety, increased anxiety, and impaired learning and memory. There's also data indicating testicular toxicity in adolescents at CO2 inhalation concentrations above 0.5%. So in this study, the discussion is there is a possible negative impact risk of imposing extended mask mandates, especially for vulnerable subgroups. Circumstantial evidence exists that extended mask use may be related to current observations of stillbirths and to reduced verbal motor and overall cognitive performance in children during the pandemic. A need exists to reconsider mask mandates. So this is real, how real science is done. And this is, you know, how real discussions should be taking place. So we all need to be paying more attention um, to things like that as they're emerging. One of the ways they get away with attempting to put out things in a mass way is to shut down all conversation. And we have got to have dialogue. We've got to get conversation. As, as I was saying with, with Carl, uh, when he was with me here, we got to get media back. How in the world do we get media actually talking about the truth? Um, 
a bit of good news here from the defender. Let me bring this in. Um, the Children's Health Defense Defender covered some good news in Washington state. A Washington doctor that was under investigation for criticizing COVID policy win an emergency injunction. So the Washington Medical Board is attempting to take away his license, um, but a judge stepped in and issued a temporary or emergency injunction to temporarily halt that. It opens a window of time for the uh, licensing uh, agency to go ahead and change their mind and decide not to remove this retired doctor's medical license. He wrote opinion pieces about his concerns um, and about what was going on during COVID. And for that, they want to remove his medical license. So it's very, um, it's very good to see in Washington state, a judge do the right thing and give this emergency injunction. So we'll keep following that and see what happens there. So hopefully um, that will go on to just completely go away. I'm hoping that the, you, you know, hopeless Pollyanna that I am, I'm really hoping that the individuals sitting on the Washington Medical Association are actually paying attention. Uh, there has been a bombardment of studies and science and data being sent by many people to them saying, leave the doctors alone. Here are the facts, you know, so we'll see. Hopefully they have time to, um, to do the right thing. Now I'm going to go over to uh, America's frontline doctors. We haven't heard from them for a while. Usually I refer a lot to the FLCCC, which is the Frontline COVID Care Alliance. But there's another group called America's Frontline Doctors. They were the ones that a lot of people were really familiar with in the beginning. Um, and there's a, a wonderful PhD named Christina Parks. In fact, I interviewed her a couple of shows ago. We were at the same conference. I got to talk to her about this particular issue. It's... Um, it's really very interesting. So let me go back to it. I'm sorry, I'm a little slow at that. That There we go. So America's Frontline Doctors. Um, contamination risk to the unvaccinated. So what's going on here? The way in the laboratory, and again, I'm not a scientist. I'm just trying to get a handle on it as, as a layman who reads a lot of science. When you, in order to make mRNA, you have to manufacture it somehow. And they use bacteria to create the mRNA. And then they're supposed to extract all aspects of that original bacteria from the mRNA before it begins to be used in a vaccine. But what they have found, independent uh, researchers have got a hold of some of the um, Pfizer vaccines and have been examining it closely to look to see what's actually in the vials. And I'll just read you some of what is here. Bacteria are used to grow large amounts of DNA, which is then used to produce the mRNA for the Pfizer vaccines. This DNA is referred to as a plasmid or expression vector DNA, and it encodes the gene for the spike protein. Because remember what, um, me not quoting anymore, what they're doing is they're trying to write 
get this little encoding. It's like a, it's a, like a little instruction booklet that goes into your cells and say, Hey, make this spike protein. It's a genetically altered, stabilized spike protein. They want your body to make so that your body, your immune system sees it. And then we'll make antibodies just to the spike protein. Okay. Um, the plasmid, again, I'm reading, the plasmid DNA is supposed to be extracted from the bacteria and used to make the synthetic mRNA in a cell-free environment. The mRNA should be extracted and purified before being incorporated into the nanolipid particles, tiny, tiny little bubbles of fat, for the vaccine. Except, clearly, it wasn't. Dr. McKernan's work showed that 10 to 30% of the genetic material in some of the vials were contaminating bacterial plasmid DNA. If the mRNA was not properly purified and thus contained substantial amounts of bacteria DNA, then the vaccines likely also contain residue from the bacteri bacteria themselves in the form of bacterial endotoxins. Some of the serious potential health impacts of this contamination are detailed below. Now, until I bring somebody back on who really can explain the science well, I'm just going to go ahead and read the bolded six points just to give you a food for thought, something to explore. And um, we'll be providing on our weekly newsletter at informedchoicewa.org at our Substack um, links to this study here. So you can go explore and there are uh, links or to this webpage there are links to everything being said. So number one, contaminating bacterial endotoxins may cause anaphylaxis, severe inflammation, and other vaccine injuries. Number two, spike protein may be being produced in, in the body in both the vaccinated and, and unvaccinated. I'm going to read the exp explanation of that because in order to, you have to understand a little bit more. Some of the contaminating bacterial DNA plasmid was found to be completely intact, rendering it able to enter both bacterial and human cells and potentially produce the spike protein in both cell types. Thus, it is possible that people now have gut bacteria or human gut cells, which harbor this plasmid DNA and which are making the spike protein. Once this plasmid is present in the bacteria of a person, they will then share their potentially spike protein, spike protein producing bacteria with everyone they come in contact with and leave some everywhere they visit. Now, this is still theoretical. It hasn't been proven yet, but they know from the content of the vial that this is theoretically possible. And it would explain why so many people have said that they didn't get the shot themselves, but their loved one did or somebody close to them or their mass massage therapist or all of their coworkers did. And they began to get some symptoms and women were having bleeding. There were other symptoms from being exposed to the vaccinated. So if the spike protein is being made inside somebody's bacteria and we are microbial creatures, you know, we're supposed to be swapping bacteria all the time. That's part of what actually makes us healthy most of the time. Um, there we have it. That would be an explanation of what's going on here. So number three of the dangers of them being this residue in the um, shots is the development of antibi antibiotic resistant strains of bacteria in the microbiome. Number four, Plasma DNA coding for the spike protein can be incorporated into your DNA, potentially causing insertional mutagenesis. Mutagenesis is what 
that's developing cancer. Number five, spike protein production may be amplified in people with latent SV40 viral infections. And a lot of people were exposed to that in the original polio viruses. So that's a whole other rabbit hole to go down. And it, they asked the question, will milk products turn on the production of spike protein in the gut? I'm going to read a little bit more about that. Another important regulatory region that turns on production of the spike protein is the T7 promoter. And it is known to be activated in the presence of milk products. So, you know, I don't know what this means. Again, it's still theoretical. But if if you know somebody who has been recently feeling worse every time they drink milk uh, or have milk products, it, it might be time to eliminate from, from their diet just to see if maybe that's something that is causing a problem. Um, so this... All of this is theoretical. I don't, you know, anybody to say that I'm claiming that this is for real what's going on. But these are the sort of studies that have not been done, that should have been done before any mRNA vaccine product was released. But now that they um, are claiming the FDA and the vaccine producers are claiming that this is a safe platform, they're not doing these studies. It's up to the independent researchers now to do the, the studies. And that's just wrong. Um, and as we showed by the fact that um, the CDC is now admitting that exposure to aluminum increases severely the risk of asthma in children, uh, we know that they're really determined to bring uh, this mRNA platform into your traditional pediatric vaccines. All right, I know I had more here I wanted to share with you. I'm going to bring out actually something that's not new, um, but it's as relevant as ever. Um, there was a 2018 Newswire press release by a group called the CCHR, the Citizens Commission on Human Rights. Uh, and the title is this. Mental Health Watchdog releases new report on link between psychotropic drugs and school mass shootings. Um, I'm going to be talking about this a lot. Um, the nation is going to be talking about this a lot because we are long past due time to explore this relationship. And I, I need to always bookend any conversation about these drugs uh, with saying before you start them, please get yourself fully educated, do your medical due diligence. And please, before you stop them or before loved one stops them, do your medical due diligence and go find out, try to find somebody to help, help very slowly taper because there's no off ramp with these. Part of the problem is we do not have fully informed consent when somebody is given, there's dozens of drugs that have this potential to cause uh, suicidal and homicidal ideation. And it's very easy for somebody to be put on these drugs. And these are very commonly prescribed. And some of these drugs, their prescriptions doubled during COVID because of all the anxiety. Um, people were not given fully informed consent means this. It means you're told the risks of a product, all the risks of product, the benefits of the product, if there are any benefits and maybe how long those benefits might last before the risks outweigh the benefits and alternatives. 
the alternatives are the big one, which is not really being passed on, not the full risks and, and not the full alternatives to taking this. And believe me, if people were told that there's no off ramp, it might be five to seven years of you fighting some really scary um, adverse reactions and injuries due to these products. Once you start trying to come off of them, why would anybody go on them? Um, but please, it's a journey that needs to be supported. And people need to know you're going on that journey or loved ones going on this journey. And we, so, you know, my, one of my personal goals here is to decrease new prescriptions and help people find truly effective treatments to address anxiety, depression, and some of these other things that these drugs are being um, ADHD that they're being prescribed for. And also to make sure people currently on them um, get the support they need to to safely come off of them. Okay. So that's so important. But this mental uh, health report was issued in 2018. And here we are in 2023. And still there's nothing going on. Why? It's, you know, there's always a tipping point. What's the tipping point for for cigarettes for so long, they got away with, with claiming, you know, doctors saying, you know, there's nothing wrong cigarette smoking, they would promote them. Um, it, opioids became an epidemic before something finally now doctors and pharmacists and individuals, it's politically correct to say opioids can't be dangerous. They have to be, you really have to watch who gets and prescribe them. Well, it's time for all of these psychiatric drugs to enter that realm. And it's going to take all of us to get there because uh, um, it's so many people are going to need support. And there is a downloadable uh, report that you can you can read the science and the data showing the connection between um, school shootings and other acts of senseless violence. Um, so there we go. This is in the news everywhere we go. Um, it it has to become a a subject that we all that we all discuss that that. Um, we get the data, we get those conversations. It needs to be done in a loving and supportive manner. Um, so many things have been undermining all of our mental health. Um, and the it it's diet, it's the world we live in, it's environmental exposures, a lot of toxins that are interfering, but there's also a wealth of support. Functional medicine doctors, naturopathic doctors, um, chiropractors, acupuncturists, herbalists, um, Chinese medical doctors. There are a lot of holistic people that you can go to who can look at you as a whole person and help find the environmental, biological, um, psychological reasons for where why you're experiencing what you're experiencing so that you can be supported as you attempt to safely go off. <clears throat> Um, some of these drugs, excuse me. A lot of pollen in the air in Tennessee today. We got grass and blooming everywhere. <clears throat> so um, that said, let's move on. We got three minutes to go. So I'm going to leave you on a positive note. So we got a three day weekend, Memorial Day weekend. Uh, so let's talk for a minute about, you know, what freedom is the people who sacrifice for freedom. We've got those who fought for our great Republic so that we could have individual freedoms so that we could have 
um, the Constitution at the federal and the state level that protects, they, the Constitution doesn't give us rights. It protects our God-given rights, our natural rights, the rights you're born with because you're a human being on this planet. You have the right to things. There is a way for all of us to be loving and supportive as a community and still retain our individual rights. But we need that conversation. We need that conversation to happen and we need freedom everywhere. We need to protect those freedoms. And each of us, we're in the strangest war right now. We're not in a war where we've got soldiers out there fighting some known, very visible, identifiable enemy. We've got this war against our freedom and it's going to take us to be the foot soldiers, the peaceful foot soldiers going out there, learning from people who were brave, who, who put their life on the line. You know, some of us, you know, some of you might have to put your jobs on the line. You might have to put friendships on the line. But if you go forward with information, with love in your heart, with the intent to um, make the world a better, safer place, um, you can do it and you will not be alone. Find your tribe, uh, find your community, go to an Informed Choice Washington, go to Children's Health Defense, go to ICANN, go to the High Wire, look around in your state, talk to people, find those freedom groups that are on in so many levels, find where your passion is, organic gardening, um, so many things that you can do to find your tribe and begin to support each other because it's worth it. Freedom is worth it. Uh, the United States is worth it. Um, our children's future is worth it. And with that, I want to thank you for listening to an Inform Life Radio on 1150 AM KKNW and streaming to CHD TV and Twitter and Facebook. Have a great weekend and we'll see you next week. Hi, I'm Brad Dacus, president and founder of the Pacific Justice Institute. For over 25 years, PJI's mission has been to defend religious freedom, parental rights, and the sanctity of human life. PJI has protected patients from being taken off life support and stood up for citizens around the country facing job loss for medical decisions that should be left between them and their doctor. For free legal representation and resources, visit PJI.org. Are you suffering from a sinking feeling that the COVID-19 pandemic is being blown out of proportion and that nothing in the news is making any sense? If so, then there is a fact-based, science-driven news show designed just for you. My name is Del Bigtree, and I am the host of The High Wire, the world's most trusted news source in digital media when it comes to accurate, science-based reporting on the COVID-19 pandemic. From COVID-19 vaccine development to mask mandates, school shutdowns to job layoffs, The High Wire goes beyond providing you with the most accurate, evidence-based investigations. We send you links to the sources for all of our reporting so that you can further your own investigation and come to your own informed conclusions. High above the agenda-driven circus of mainstream media, we do not run. We do not hide from the truth. Instead, we walk the high wire. If you care about truth, then join us on Instagram, Twitter, Roku, and our website, thehighwire.com.